This is episode 162 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, They Came Like Swallows, by William Maxwell. This episode is part of our Sunday literary series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about the novella, They Came Like Swallows, by William Maxwell. William Maxwell was an American editor and novelist. He served as the New Yorker's fiction editor for 40 years. Crazy when you hear about people's long careers, right? He was born in 1908 and passed away at the age of 91 in year 2000, perhaps We should have taken that as a warning about this century, uh, which I'd have to say at this point in time is not exactly living up to its potential. Maxwell worked with a multitude of writers during the heyday of The New Yorker. I grew up with The New Yorker, and like many things that you're raised with, I have uh, mixed feelings about it. But I can't deny the genius of some of the writers that they had like Maxwell, and writers he supported, John Updike, J.D. Salinger, John Cheever, Mavis Gallant, Frank O'Connor, John O'Henry, and Eudora Welty. Maxwell was also a writer, though much of that came later in his life, or at least the uh, accolades came later. He had some collections, a couple children's books, a few nonfiction books, one titled Ancestors, A Family History, and a lot of short stories, uh, but it's his novels that he's mostly known for. Bright Center of Heaven came out in 1934. That was his first. Then the book we're going to be talking about today, They Came Like Swallows, which was in 1937. The Folded Leaf, Time Will Darken It, The Chateau, and So Long, See You Tomorrow, finally in 1980, which you may have heard of. Some of the later ones are quite famous. I love William Maxwell, uh, so I hope you have a chance to read some of his work. For today, They Came Like Swallows might be a bit rough. It's about the 1918 flu epidemic and is seen through the eyes of three people. Bunny, an eight-year-old boy who loses his mother to the flu. Robert, his 13-year-old brother. And finally, James, the father who is left completely bereft by the loss of his wife. And if this is too tough to take today, know that I have read every word of this book for you and wept all the tears so that you don't need to if you don't want to. Even more heartbreaking is that the novella is partly autobiographical as Maxwell, or Bill, as his friends called him, lost his own mother when he was 10 to the 1918 flu, Spanish flu. 
We'll talk about how that affected his life and his writing. Let's start with the source of the title, They Came Like Swallows. In a late interview, Maxwell said, Out of the corner of my eye, I see my 90th birthday approaching. I don't yet need a cane, but I have a feeling that my table manners have deteriorated. My posture is what you'd expect of someone addicted to sitting in front of a typewriter. Because I actively enjoy sleeping, dreams, the unexplained dialogues that take place in my head as I am drifting off, all that— I tell myself that lying down to an afternoon nap that goes on and on through eternity is not something to be concerned about. What spoils this pleasant fancy is the recollection that when people are dead, they don't read books. This I find unbearable. No Tolstoy, no Chekhov, no Elizabeth Bowen, no Keats, no Rilke. Before I am ready to call it quits, I would like to reread every book I have ever deeply enjoyed, beginning with Jane Austen and going through shelf after shelf of the bookcases until I arrive at the autobiographies of William Butler Yeats. And it's actually Yeats who gives us the title and also the opening preface to the book from a poem called Cool Park, 1929. It's one of Yeats' great memorializing poems, one that he wrote in honor of Lady Gregory, who was his patron and his friend. And the first stanza is this. I meditate upon a swallow's flight, upon a aged woman and her house, a sycamore and lime tree lost in night, although that western cloud is luminous. Great works constructed there in nature's spite, for scholars and for poets after us. Thoughts long knitted into a single thought, a dance-like glory that those walls begot. Gregory Dowling wrote in an essay for The Able Muse, the place is, of course, already well known to readers of Yeats's poetry, the home and grounds of his great aristocratic patron and friend, Lady Gregory, where he has found comfort, peace, and encouragement. The date is two years after Lady Gregory had been forced to sell the house and estate to the forestry department. This explains the elegiac tone of the poem. Lady Gregory is still alive, though now an aged woman, but the estate is no longer the place of aristocratic privilege and enlightened generosity that made it so important to the poet. The second stanza mostly talks about the other writers who have benefited from this wonderful place. And then comes the third stanza, uh, the one uh, piece of which Maxwell picked out to begin his book. They came like swallows and like swallows went, and yet a woman's powerful character could keep a swallow to its first intent. And half a dozen in formation there that seemed to whirl upon a compass point, found certainty upon the dreaming air. Those were the six lines that Maxwell used to introduce his novella. I also really like the next two lines. The intellectual sweetness of those lines that cut across time or cross it withershins. Partly because of that great word, withershins, which is a Scottish adverb sometimes pronounced withershins or withershins, which means counterclockwise, a direction that I guess is sometimes considered unlucky. The book is divided into three parts, whose angel child 
is about eight-year-old Bunny, and then part two, titled Robert, which is about Robert, and Upon a Compass Point, from the poem again, which is about Elizabeth's husband, uh, Bunny, and Robert's father. Maxwell grew up in Lincoln, Illinois, and the book is set in a similar Midwestern Illinois town. The book opens on the second Sunday in November in 1918, and in Bunny's eyes, it will prove to be a very long day. But in the morning, after breakfast, his father is reading from the paper. And here's an excerpt for you. His father had settled himself in his chair with the Sunday paper. From time to time, he solemnly turned the pages. When he read aloud, he expected everybody to listen. What is Spanish influenza? Is it something new? Does it come from Spain? The disease now occurring in this country and called Spanish influenza resembles a very contagious kind of cold accompanied by fever, pains in the head, eyes, back, or other parts of the body, and a feeling of severe sickness. In most of the cases, the symptoms disappear after three or four days, the patient rapidly recovering. Some of the patients, however, develop pneumonia or inflammation of the ear or meningitis, and many of these complicated cases die. Whether this so-called Spanish influenza is identical with the epidemic of earlier years is not known. The word epidemic was new to Bunny. In his mind, he saw it, unpleasantly shaped, and rather like a bedpan. Although the present epidemic is called Spanish influenza, there's no reason to believe that it originated in Spain. Some writers who have studied the question believe that the epidemic came from the Orient, and they call attention to the fact that the Germans mention the disease as occurring along the Eastern Front in the summer and fall of 1917. By the calm way that his father crossed one knee over the other, it was clear that he was concerned with the epidemic for the same reason he was interested in floods in China, what happened in Congress, and family history, because he chose to be concerned with such things. Brendan Gill, in his memoir here at The New Yorker, tells several stories about Maxwell. In one, he's showing Maxwell a Roman coin that he had just purchased, which had been buried in the in the sands of Egypt, along with thousands of others, to keep it out of the hands of Caesar, who was advancing. Maxwell jiggled the coin in one hand and then said to Gill, The odds are on the objects. His attention to objects is also clear in that section about reading the paper in the library on Sunday. I'll go on with uh, another excerpt. Although the library had been familiar at breakfast time, Bunny knew that it was now subject to change, to uncertainty. His father had come home again and would be home, said the big clock in the hall, for the day. The little brass clock with clear glass sides emerged out of a general silence, asserting that it was not so, that Mr. Morrison would go out again after dinner. They argued then. The grandfather's clock made slow, involved statements, which the other replied to briefly. Quarter of ten, said the grandfather's clock, untroubled by the irrelevance. Ten till, said the little brass clock on the mantel. So long as that went on, Bunny could not be sure of anything. 
There's another section where Robert's toy soldiers are damaged, and the pain that you feel as the reader is just outsized. Maxwell really creeps up on you and knocks your legs out from under you, even when you're ready. It's incredibly moving. The details and descriptions of the house are prevalent throughout the novel. The house represents the sanctuary associated with Elizabeth, so much her house and her influence on its inhabitants. After Maxwell's mother died in real life, he had to go live with some relatives away from his house, which he referred to as Wunderkammer, or Chamber of Wonders. If you want to try to explore the meaning of a family home to a child or to a family, I suggest you give They Came Like Swallows a try. Maxwell wrote later about the houses as one of the many marvels of Lincoln, his hometown. No house inside or out was like any other house, and neither were the people who lived in them. Incandescent carbon lamps suspended high over the intersections lighted the way home. The streets were paved with brick, and elm trees met over them to provide a canopy of shade. There were hanging baskets of ferns and geraniums, sometimes with American flags, suspended from porch ceilings. The big beautiful white horses in the firehouse had to be exercised, and so on my way to school now and then, I got to see the fire engine when nobody's house was on fire. In the book, since we as readers know how to read the signs, even though Bunny doesn't, we start to put together the ominous hints of the tragedy that will unfold as seen through the eyes of a child, as he, for example, tries to tell her about a schoolmate who has gotten sick at school, uh, but she's busy and she won't listen. Then when he goes to pick up some cream and butter at the shop where the adults are talking, uh, he checks out the candy. Bunny pressed his nose against the glass case. Looking intently, he tasted gumdrops, licorice, caramels, candy corn. In Chicago, the old woman said as she fastened her shawl closely about her shoulders, I hear there's people dying of influenza, and in St. Louis. A pleasant imaginary voice said, Help yourself, Bunny. Take as much of anything there is in the case as you want. Mrs. Lolly jabbed the pencil straight into her head. There's lots of sickness about, she said. Come in again. And then, with what was left of the same breath, Young man? Bunny goes home, and it turns out that it's Armistice Day. The war is over. His father says, You might want to listen to this, son. You might like to remember it when you're grown. But instead of listening to the military terms of the armistice with Germany, Bunny went and put his head in his mother's lap, for he felt very odd inside of him. He heard her say, James, this child is burning up with fever, and he thought dreamily that it must be so. I'm going to be sick, he thought, grateful for the cool hand on his forehead and her nearness. And after that, life was no longer uncertain or incomplete. So Bunny gets sick, as Maxwell did, and the story shifts over to Robert. He's 13 and an active boy with friends, quite different from Bunny, who he clearly has mixed feelings about. Robert had a bad accident when he was younger and lost 
part of his leg, which is mentioned just in passing in Bunny's section of the book. But once you get to Robert's section, it takes up a significant part of his thoughts, as you might imagine. And in this excerpt, he learns about Bunny's being sick. Standing in the door to the library, his father said, It is vitally important to keep her out of that boy's room. Tie her down, Dr. McGregor said, if you can't keep her out any other way. Where's Bunny? he said and made a face at her. He's sick. It was his father who answered him. What's the matter? Spanish influenza, his mother said, coming toward them from the dining room. Robert turned his eyes away. She was getting big around the waist on account of the baby coming. He didn't mean to look, but sometimes he did anyway, and it embarrassed her. If I'd only had sense enough, she exclaimed, not to them, but to herself, apparently. If I'd only taken Bunny out of school when the epidemic first started. The room seemed very bright to Robert after being out of doors. He could feel the heat from the fireplace through his clothes. You can't be taking the boy out of school every time somebody in town gets sick. So everyone is warned and warned to keep Bunny's mother out of Bunny's room, but she ends up in there anyway when a bird flies in through an open window and Robert is summoned to get rid of the bird. I'm sure you're shocked to hear that birds have a certain symbolism in this book. When Robert sees his mother sitting on Bunny's bed, he thinks it's his fault. And he's not allowed to go play now with the other boys since the influenza is in the house. So he climbs up on the roof to read a section of the paper about schools closing. Partly it was all his own fault because he let his mother into the room where Bunny was. So maybe it was right for him to be punished. Two days had passed and she didn't look any different, but maybe it was right anyway. Only what good, he asked himself as he got up and went over to the rocking chair. What good was it having school closed? What good was all the time in the world, so long as he had to stay in his own yard? What good was anything? And now here he is up on the roof reading the newspaper. Page two. There it was. Schools. The school board and the health officer have posted notices on the schoolhouses and at places about town to the effect that the schools will be closed until further notice. Robert felt very small prickles in the region of his spine. He read the first sentence twice to make sure that there had not been a mistake. His mother couldn't keep him home indefinitely. Things as awful as that didn't happen. She was just tired and cross this afternoon, and so there would be time for playing football and marbles, for making shinny sticks, for taking muskrat traps down from the top of the garage and cleaning them, for hunting squirrels and rabbits. But there was more in the notice than that. It meant that something was happening in town, all around him. Not an open excitement like the day the armistice was signed, with fire engines and whistles and noise and people riding around in the hearse, but a quiet thing that he couldn't see or hear that was in Bunny's room and on 10th Street where Arthur Cook lived and more places than that. Far down inside him and and for no reason that he could understand, Robert was pleased. The notice read as follows. To the parents, while the epidemic has not reached Logan to any extent, And while it may seem unnecessary to many, 
Yet after consulting with the health officer and the medical authorities, your school board decided to close the schools for this week at least in the hope that no new cases will develop and that this community will be spared any serious epidemic. The Illinois Committee on Public Safety strongly advises this course and cautions people against gathering in large numbers for any purpose, also traveling on railroad trains, except when absolutely necessary. Robert closed his eyes. It seemed once more as if he could hear shouting, First down and four to go. Matthews and Berry Hill shouting, and for that reason he wished, just for this afternoon, that Bunny, who was sick anyway, had been the one to get run over and have his leg cut off above the knee. To talk for a second here about Maxwell's willingness to dig into the complexity of emotions between two brothers, you know, he doesn't write in cliches and stereotypes, and so we're intrigued, right, to hear more. And here Robert thinks about his mother's reaction to his leg. And the same way with games, his mother took it for granted that he would learn to swim and dive, so he did, and everything that other boys did. And the only time she praised him was when he won the tennis singles at the scout camp. The scoutmaster was surprised and said how fine it was, meaning that Robert was handicapped with only one leg. And the news got into the paper eventually, and his mother wrote, Very nice. Mailed your clean underwear this morning. Are you getting enough to eat? Another side note here about emotions and honesty. Another scene that struck me was when Bunny was eavesdropping on his mother and her sister talking. And his mother says, Speaking of the backs of women's heads, I took Robert aside the other day and made him promise that if anything happened to me, he'd break all my cut glass. I don't want some other woman using it when I'm gone. What do you think of that? Alice Monroe is another writer, one of my very favorites, who can just shock you by revealing people's true feelings. And there's a scene in one of her stories about a woman on her deathbed who asks to be handed a straw hat that's hanging at the end of the bed. And when she gets it, she smashes it against the side of the bed over and over until it's completely ruined. And she hands it back to her visitor and says, now my sister-in-law can't have it. Can you imagine? I think if you're a person who harbors feelings like that, it must be a little shocking to have them exposed. And if you can't imagine feeling that way, it's, you know, a window into what other people are like. This is why we read, right? So to return to our story, Bunny and Robert's mother and father leave to go to Chicago, and Bunny and Robert have to go and stay with some relatives. And Maxwell writes, as suddenly as that, everything was changed, everything was different. And in the new place, news of the influenza continues. Even after the blessing had been asked and they were free to receive it, Uncle Wilfred was not restored to a good humor. So far as Robert could make out, he was not responsible. It was the health officer who had requested that for the duration of the epidemic, the Christian church, together with all the other churches, close its doors. 
To Uncle Wilfred's mind, there was no need for such action. It's one thing, he said, passing over the wing, which was Robert's favorite piece of chicken, and giving him the drumstick, which he never ate if he could help it. It is one thing to close the bowling alley and the pool halls, but to close the Church of Jesus Christ is something else again. Anybody would think that church gatherings are unhealthy, that they're particularly conducive to the spread of disease. Aunt Clara said, It's true that there's lots of sickness about. I say that much is true. Church, Uncle Wilfred said, is of so little importance that they can afford to suspend it at the slightest pretext. There's no reason that I can see why people who come together for an hour on Sunday should be any more exposed to disease than they are all day long in stores and offices. Robert was not hungry now. While Uncle Wilfred was talking, all desire for food left him. It's cold in here, he said, not expecting that Aunt Clara would get up and go look at the thermometer. I declare, 76. Don't you feel well, Robert? He was all right, perfectly. There was no reason why they should all be staring at him that way. Your eyes look bloodshot. Robert pushed his chair back from the table. No, he said. I just thought it was cold in here. And before he could get upstairs to the bathroom, he was vomiting. In the third section, the story becomes more surrealistic. The grieving father keeps replaying parts of their trip to Chicago to try and change the outcome. And then he's baffled and infuriated by the banal things people say when someone has died. In one crazy moment, a relative is comparing the grieving of the two sons while he prepares to trim his nails. It's so infuriating and bizarre and real at the same time. It just makes you want to smack people. (laughs) Or maybe that's just me. So here's another excerpt. This is from James's section. And he saw that his life was like all other lives. It had the same function, and it differed from them only in shape, as one salt cellar is different from another or one knife blade, what happened to him had happened before. And it would happen again, more than once. Probably someone would lie awake all night in that very same hospital, feeling his lungs contract and expand, contract, expand, until the whole of him was limited to the one effort of breathing for somebody else. But it would not be Elizabeth who was dying of pneumonia two rooms down the hall. Gottlieb wrote about Maxwell giving a lecture at Smith College, and the title of the lecture was The Writer is Illusionist. Maxwell said in his gentle voice, indeed, and what amounted to a whisper, It would help if you give what I am now about to read to you only half your attention. It was surely the first time that anyone had proposed such a thing to the hundreds of girls who made up his audience. They leaned forward in their seats, listening intently to every word. Afterward, they would never forget what he had said. Maxwell's stories are like that, and so are the means by which he makes other writers' stories more nearly their own than they know how to make them. I want to talk a little bit more about the writing of the novella. 
John Updike, who worked with Maxwell for many years, wrote an article for The New Yorker upon the publication of two Library of America volumes, which contained Maxwell's work and were edited by Christopher Cardiff a hundred years after Maxwell's birth. Updike explains that Maxwell's first novel, Bright Center of Heaven, Maxwell actually tried to suppress it, and when Knopf later tried to reprint it, Maxwell said no. He described it as hopelessly imitative, and he said he was very infatuated with Virginia Woolf at the time he wrote it and uh, was trying to copy her. So Updike continues, In his next novel, They Came Like Swallows, Maxwell subdues his figurative language to describe the most momentous event of his life, his mother's sudden death in the flu epidemic of 1918-19, after childbirth at the age of 37. My childhood came to an end at that moment, he later wrote. The worst that could happen had happened, and the shine went out of everything. Modest specifics clearly rendered replace the sometimes florid style of the first novel. The voice and form did not come easily. Cardiff's chronology tells us of the year 1935. Plans, autobiographical novel about death of his mother, writes seven drafts of the opening section, but is happy with none of them. The work was completed with the help of the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire and a patron in Urbana who gave him, in exchange for grading papers, $4 a month, room and board, and privacy. Without this arrangement, he later said, I doubt very much that the book would have ever been finished or that I would have continued to be a writer. He also credited his friend Robert Fitzgerald, the poet and translator, with persuading him that, quote, life was tragic, but quote, literature was serious business. The novel is not simply autobiographical. The lies of fiction were employed to get at the nearly unbearable heart truth. Maxwell was 10 when the flu seized his family and his mother died. His alter ego in the novel, Bunny, is eight. The subtracted two years sharpen the child's vulnerability and simplify his picture of events. Nor does the novel, divided into three parts, confine itself to his point of view. The actual death and its immediate aftermath are shown as perceived by Bunny's rough-and-tumble 13-year-old brother Robert and by his similarly masculine, unsympathetic father. If Bunny's section titled Whose Angel Child is one of Maxwell's most brilliant transformations of memory, the next two, told from well beyond Bunny's point of view, testify to the author's powers of imagination. The novel, like its predecessor, is somewhat supernatural. Human awareness animates the inanimate. And here's a little line from the book. All the lines and surfaces of the room bent toward his mother, so that when he looked at the pattern of the rug, he saw it necessarily in relation to the toe of her shoe and comforts the bereaved with intimations of a persisting ghost. Maxwell can write, and so can Updike. A few more biographical notes. Maxwell had published one novel, Bright Center of Heaven, and had the second, They Came Like Swallows, in his typewriter when he moved to New York with a $200 advance and applied for a job at The New Yorker. He eventually moved to the fiction department where he worked with Catherine White, E.B. White's wife and longtime New Yorker writer and editor. 
and he formed a lifelong uh, friendship with her, the one that was always very uh, professional. And long after they both retired, they still wrote letters that began, Dear Mrs. White and Dear Mr. Maxwell. Uh, one day in World War II, he interviewed a woman who had applied for a job as a poetry editor. And uh, later he would say, she was very attractive and I pursued the matter. And in 1945, Emily Gilman Noyes and he were married. They were married 55 years and he died eight days after she did. They were survived by two daughters. His 14 years in Lincoln, Illinois, which are sometimes called Draperville or Logan, as it is in They Came Like Swallows, would provide, uh, he put it later, three-quarters of the material I would need for the rest of my writing life. And that so much reminded me of what Kendra Atlee-Work said recently during the Eastern Sierra Book Festival, uh, which I'll mention at the end of the show. Uh, where she said when she was in her MFA program in Minnesota, uh, one of the professors remarked that much of what you will draw from during your writing life will have happened to you by the time you are 15. So just very interesting to hear these parallels between these extraordinary writers. In an interview with the Paris Review, uh, Maxwell was asked, what exactly is the force that makes you a writer? And he tells the story about talking to a colleague about Willa Cather and what she was like and hearing about her in a way that he hadn't anticipated. And uh, so he uh, goes on to tell the interviewer, I was surprised. And so I said, whatever made her a writer, do you think? And he said, why, what makes anyone a writer? Deprivation, of course. And then he begged my pardon. But I do think it's deprivation that makes people writers if they have it in them to be a writer. With ancestors, I thought I was writing on account of my Campbellite forebears, and the deprivation didn't even show up in the first draft. But the high point of the book emotionally turned out to be two chapters dealing with our family life before and after my mother's death in the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. I had written about this before in They Came Like Swallows and again in The Folded Leaf, where it is fictionalized out of recognition. But there was always something untold, something I remembered from that time. I meant so long See You Tomorrow to be the story of somebody else's tragedy. But the narrative weight is evenly distributed between the rifle shot on the first page and my mother's absence. Now I have nothing more to say about the death of my mother, I think, forever. But it was a motivating force in four books. If my mother turns up again, I will be astonished. I may even tell her to go away, but I do not think it will be necessary. So I guess you and I can be comforted that Maxwell did eventually recover from his mother's death and had a productive life. His lack of celebrity never bothered him. He said, why should I let bestseller lists spoil a happy life? His worth as a writer continues to grow after his death, uh, but he did receive a number of awards during his lifetime. Newbery Medal Runner-Up, National Book Award, Penn Malamud Award, and the Mark Twain Award. And finally, 
Again, in the words of John Updike, novel after novel, the recognition of art and actuality continued to present stimulating difficulties for Maxwell. In describing, in this magazine, his friend, the poet Louise Bogan, upon her death in 1970, he said, in whatever she wrote, the line of truth was exactly superimposed on the line of feeling. Such an exacting superimposition represented his ideal. Okay, since I promised I would mention it, there is a recording of the Eastern Sierra Book Festival, which was streamed on Facebook. Uh, so you can either go to the website for Eastern Sierra Book Festival or on Facebook to the Facebook page for Eastern Sierra Book Festival. And it's long, but it's uh, broken up into various sessions by author. And you can find the interview with Kendra Atley work. And I think it's a worthwhile interview if you're interested in some of the topics we've been talking about today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.